Section 4 of The Flight of the Heron by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eileen. Part 1, Chapter 3. Captain Keith Wyndham, unwillingly revisiting the neighborhood of Highbridge, which was populated with leaping highlanders about nine feet high, and permeated, even in his dream, with the dronings and wailings of the bagpipe, woke, hot and angry, to find that the unpleasant strains at least were real, and were coming through the window of the room in which he lay. He remained a moment blinking, wondering if they pretended some attack by a hostile clan, and finally got out of bed and hobbled to the window. In front of the house a bearded piper was marching solemnly up and down, the ribbons on the chanters of his instrument fluttering in the morning breeze. There was no sign of any armed gathering. Oh, good gad, it must be the usual rivali for the household, thought the Englishman. Enough to put a sensitive person out of temper for the rest of the day. And he returned to bed and pulled the blankets over his ears. At breakfast, an excellent meal, and a pleasant one also, where very civil inquiries were made concerning the night he had spent and the state of his injuries. Miss Cameron expressed the hope that he had not been unduly disturbed by Neil McMartin's Pibaroch, adding that he was not as fine a piper as his father Angus had been. Keith was then thankful that he had not heard Angus. When the meal was over, he strayed to the window and looked out, wondering how he should occupy himself all day, but determined upon one thing, that he would not let these Camerons guess how bitterly he was mortified over the matter of the bridge. Outside the porch, his host, save the mark, was already talking earnestly to a couple of Highlanders, in one of whom Captain Wyndham had no difficulty recognizing the cutthroat of the previous day. The other, he fancied, was the musician of the early morning. I wish I could persuade myself that Mr. Cameron were putting a ban upon that performance, he thought, but he hardly hoped it. Presently the young laird came in. He was wearing the kilt today, and for the first time Keith Wyndham thought that there was something to be said for that article of attire at least on a man of his proportions. "'Is not that your attendant of yesterday out there?' remarked the soldier idly. "'Lachlan McMartin. Yes. The other, the piper who, I'm afraid, woke you this morning, is his brother Neil.' Captain Wyndham went on the piper's master in a different tone. "'What I'm going to tell you may be news to you, or it may not, but in either case the world will soon know it. Today is Saturday.' and on Monday the prince will set up a standard at Glenfinnan. There was a second silence. And you, I suppose, Mr. Cameron, intend to be present, and to cross the Rubicon in his company. All Clan Cameron will be there, was the reply, given with a probably unconscious lift of the head. And as in consequence of this, I shall be pretty much occupied today, and little at home. I would advise you, if I may, not to go out of sight of the house and policies. You might. You and Cameron hesitated for a moment. I might find myself tempted to abscond, you were going to say, struck in his captive, and saw at once, from the bleak look which came into those blue eyes, that his pleasantry did not find favor. I should not dream of so insulting you, replied Ardroy coldly. I was merely going to say that it might not be over safe for you, in that uniform, if you did and as he was evidently quite offended at the idea that he could be supposed to harbour such a suspicion of his prisoner, there was nothing for the latter to do but to beg his pardon, and to declare that he had spoken 
as indeed he had, in the merest jest. But perhaps this young mountaineer cannot take a jest, he thought to himself when they had parted. I'll make no more, at least outwardly. But he was not to keep this resolution. And indeed he had little but occasional glimpses of young Ardroy, or of any of the family, that morning. The whole place was in a bustle of preparation and excitement. Tenants were, Keith surmised from various indications, being collected and armed, though only single Highlanders, wild and unintelligible persons, appeared from time to time in the neighbourhood of the house. Miss Cameron and Miss Grant seemed to be equally caught up in the swirl, and Mr. Grant was invisible. The only idle person in this turmoil, the captive Englishman, sat calmly on the grass plot at a little distance from the house, with the history of the adventures of Mr. Joseph Andrews in his hand, half amused to see the inhabitants of this ant-heap, and thus he thought of them, so busy over what would certainly come to nothing, like all the other Jacobite attempts. And yet, he reflected that, for all the futility of such preparations, those who made them were like to pay very dearly for them. Ewan Cameron would get himself outlawed at the least, and somehow he, whom Ewan Cameron had defeated yesterday, would be sorry. The young Highlander had certainly displayed towards his captive foe the most perfect chivalry and courtesy, and to this latter quality Keith Wyndham, who could himself at will display the most perfect rudeness, was never blind. And yet, a sardonically comforting reflection, a rebel must find the presence of an English soldier not a little embarrassing at this juncture. It was partly a desire to show that he too possessed tact, and partly pure boredom, which caused Captain Wyndham, in the latter half of the afternoon, to disregard the warning given him earlier, and to leave the neighbourhood of the house. He helped himself to a stout stick on which to lean in case of necessity, though his ankle was remarkably better and hardly pained him at all, and started to stroll along the bank of the loch. Nobody had witnessed his departure. And in the mild, sometimes obscured sunshine, he followed the path round to the far side, thinking that could the little lake only be transported from these repellent mountains and this ugly purple heather into more civilized and less elevated surroundings, it would not be an ill piece of water. Arrived on the farther side, he began idly to follow a track which led away from the lake and presently started to wind upwards among the heather. He continued to follow it without much thinking of what he was doing, until suddenly it brought him round a fold of the mountainside to a space of almost level ground where, beside a group of pine trees, stood three low-thatched cottages. And there Captain Wyndham remained staring, not exactly at the cottages, nor at the score or so of highlanders, men, women, and children, in front of these dwellings, with their backs turned to him, but at the rather puzzling operations which were going forward on top of the largest croft. At first, Captain Wyndham thought that the man astride the roof, and the other, on the short ladder, must be repairing the thatch, until he saw that, on the contrary, portions of this were being relentlessly torn off. Then the man on the roof plunged in his arm to the shoulder and drew forth something round and flat, which he handed to the man on the ladder, who passed it down. Next came something long that glittered, then another round object, then an unmistakable musket. And with that, Keith realized what he was witnessing, the bringing forth of arms which should have been given up at the disarming act of 1725, but which had been concealed and saved for just such an emergency as the present.
Now there came bundling out several broadswords tied together, and another musket. But a man in a bright scarlet coat with blue facings and long white spatterdashes is altogether too conspicuous a figure in a mountain landscape, and Keith had not in fact been there more than a minute before a boy who had turned to pick up a targe saw him, gave a yell, and pointing, screamed out something in Gaelic. Every face was instantly turned in the intruder's direction, and moved by the same impulse, each man snatched up a weapon and came running towards him, even he on the roof sliding down with haste. Captain Wyndham was too proud to turn and flee, nor would it much have advantaged him. But there he was, unarmed save for a staff, not even knowing for certain whether these hornets upon whose nest he had stumbled were Mr. Cameron's tenants or no, but pretty sure that they would not understand English, and that he could not therefore convince them of his perfect innocence. Deeply did he curse his folly in that moment. He had at any rate the courage not to attempt to defend himself. On the contrary, he deliberately threw his stick upon the ground, and held out his hands to show that they were empty. The foremost Highlander, who was brandishing one of those unpleasant basket-tilted swords, hesitated, as Keith had hoped, and shouted something, on which the rest rushed round, and as many hands as possible laid hold of Captain Wyndham's person. He staggered under the impact, but made no resistance, for, to his great relief, he had already recognized in the foremost assailant with the broadsword the scowling visage of Lachlan McMartin, and beside him the milder one of his brother Neil, Mr. Cameron's piper. Even if they did not understand English, these two would at least know who he was. "'I am your master's prisoner,' he called out, wishing the others would not press so upon him as they clutched his arms. "'You had better do me no harm.' In Lachlan's face there was a sort of sullen and unwilling recognition. He spoke rapidly to his brother, who nodded and gave what was presumably an order. Reluctantly, the clutching hands released their grip of Keith, their owners merely glowering at him, but they did not go away, though the circle now opened out a little. A couple of women had joined the group, and a small child or two, all talked excitedly. Keith had never thought to feel gratitude towards the wolf-like Lachlan, but at this moment he could almost have embraced him, since but for him and Neil, his own might well have been the first blood on those resuscitated claymores. His preserver now advanced, his hand on his dirk, and addressed the soldier, rather to his surprise, in English. "'You may be the laird's prisoner,' he said between his teeth, "'but why did you come up here? You came to spy, to spy!' He almost spat the words in the intruder's face. And with spies who have seen what they should not have seen, there is a very short way. Either this, he unsheathed an inch or two of his dirk, or the lochan down yonder with a stone round the neck. I am not a spy, retorted Captain Wyndham haughtily. I knew nothing of there being cottages here. I was taking a walk and came upon you entirely by accident. A walk? when yesterday your foot was so hurt that you must ride the laird's horse, hissed Lachlan, bringing out all the sibilants and this not ineffective retort. All this way for pleasure with a foot that is hurt. And then you will be going back to the Sajir and Jirak, to the red soldiers at Kilkemaine, and be telling them, ah, it will certainly be better. And his fingers closed round the black hilt at his groin. Keith had never seen fingers which more clearly itched to draw and use a weapon. But at this point Neil the piper intervened, laying his hand on his brother's arm, shaking his head, 
and speaking earnestly in their native tongue, and Keith, concluding that a professional musician, if that term could possibly be extended to one who produced sounds like this morning's, would be a man of peace, felt more secure, not knowing that in a fray the piper habitually gave his pipes to his boy and fought with the best. But he heartily wished himself back at the house again. It would have been far better had he taken his host's warning to heart instead of making a foolish jest about it. During the colloquy, however, there approached the group a handsome, venerable old man whom Keith had not previously noticed. He came towards them tapping the ground with a long staff, as if of uncertain sight, and said something first to Lachlan and then to Neil. The piper appeared to listen with attention, and on that turned to the captive. "'My father is asking you,' he said, in a manner which suggested that he was seeking for his words in an unfamiliar tongue, to permit him to touch you and to be speaking with you. He's almost blind. He has not the English, but I will be speaking for him. Certainly, if he wishes it, replied Captain Wyndham with resignation, thinking that permission to touch him might well have been asked earlier and not taken so violently for granted. Neil took his father's hand and led him up to the interview. The old man, who was obviously not completely blind, peered into the Englishman's face, while his hands strayed for a moment or two over his shoulders and breast. He then addressed a question to his elder son, who translated it. He asks if you was meeting a cura yesterday. If I had any notion what a cura was, returned Keith, I might be able to satisfy your father's curiosity. As it is. A cura, explained Neil, struggling, is, um... A large bird, having a long, a long, it is called heron in the English, interposed Lachlan. And he added violently, Malach Orst, was you meeting a heron yesterday? The earth sounded like an objurgation, which it was, and the speaker's eyes as they glared at Keith had turned to dark coals. It was evidently a crime in these parts to encounter that bird, though to the heron's victim himself it wore rather the aspect of a calamity. Ignoring this almost frenzied query, he replied shortly to the official interpreter. Yes, unfortunately I did meet a heron yesterday, which, by frightening my horse, led to my being here today. Lachlan McMartin smote his hands together with an exclamation which seemed to contain as much dismay as anger, but Neil contented himself with passing on this information to his parent, and after a short colloquy turned once more to the Englishman. My father is Taisher, he explained. That is, he has the two sights. He knew that the heron would be making Mac the laird to meet with you. Oh, Gad, I could wish it had not, thought Keith, but judged it more politic not to give this aspiration utterance. And he asked you whether you was first meeting Mackie Kellen near water. If that name denotes Mr. Ewan Cameron, replied Keith, I did near a good deal of water. This was passed on to the seer, involving the repetition of a word which sounded to Captain Wyndham like whiskey, and roused in his mind a conjecture that the old man was demanding, or about to demand, that beverage. None, however, was produced, and after thanking the Englishman, in a very courtly way, through the medium of his son, the soothsayer departed again, shaking his head and muttering to himself, and Keith saw him, when he reached the cottages, sit down upon a bench outside the largest, and appear to fall into a reverie. 
directly, he was safely there. Lachlan McMartin reverted with startling suddenness to his former character and subject of conversation. You have seen what you should not have seen, Redcoat, he repeated fiercely. Before you go away from this place, you shall be swearing to keep silence. That I shall certainly not swear to do, replied Captain Wyndham promptly. I am not accustomed to take an oath at any man's bidding, least of all at a rebel's. Again the dark flame shone in the Highlander's eyes. And you think that we will be letting you go, Sassenach? I think that you will be extremely sorry for the consequences if you do not return the soldier. You know quite well that if you lay a finger upon me, you will have to answer for it to your master or chief, or whatever he is. We are the foster brothers of Machich Kelein, responded Lachlan slowly. What, all of you? interjected Keith. I wish him joy of you. He knows that all we do is done for him. If we should be making a mistake, not knowing his will, or if you should fall by chance into the loch, we should be sorry, but we could not help it that your foot should be slipping, for it was hurt yesterday. And you would never go back to Kilkemain to tell the Sajid and Dirac what you have been seeing. He did not now seem to be threatening, but rather with a kind of gloomy satisfaction, thinking out a plausible course of action with regard to the intruder, and it was a good deal more disquieting to the latter than his first attitude. So was the expression on the faces of the other men when Lachlan harangued them volubly in his own language. His brother Neil, alone, appeared to be making some remonstrance, but in the end was evidently convinced, and almost before the unlucky officer realized what was toward, the whole group had launched themselves upon him. Keith Wyndham fought desperately, but he had no chance at all, having been surrounded and almost held from the outset, and in a moment he was borne down by sheer weight of numbers. Buttons came off his uniform. His wig was torn bodily from his head by some assailant who probably imagined that he had hold of the Sassanach's own hair. He was buffeted and nearly strangled, and lay at last with his face pressed into the heather, one man kneeling upon his shoulders, while another tied his hands behind his back, and a third situated upon his legs, secured his ankles. Outraged and breathless, the soldier had time for only two sensations. Surprise that no dirk had yet been planted in him, and wonder whether they really meant to take him down and throw him into the lake. The struggle had been conducted almost in silence, but conversation broke out again now that he was overpowered. Only for a moment, however, then, as suddenly, it ceased and the heavy, bony knees on Captain Wyndham's shoulder-blades unexpectedly removed themselves. A sort of awestruck silence succeeded. With faint thoughts of druids and their sacrifices in his mind, Keith wondered whether the patriarchal soothsayer were now approaching to drive a knife with due solemnity into his back, or, just possibly, to denounce his descendant's violence. But he could not twist himself to look, for the man on his legs— though apparently smitten motionless, was still squatting there. And then, a voice that Keith knew, vibrating with passion, suddenly shouted words in Urs, whose purport he could guess. The man on his legs arose precipitately. And next moment, Ewan Cameron was kneeling beside him in the heather, bending over him, a hand on his shoulder. Captain Wyndham, are you hurt? Oh, God, forgive me, what have they been doing? Tied! and in a moment he had snatched a little knife out of his stocking and was cutting Keith's bonds. 
Oh, why did I let you out of my sight? For God's sake, tell me that you are not injured. He sounded in the extreme of anxiety. And well he might be, thought the indignant Englishman, who made no haste to reply that, if exhausted, he was as yet unwounded. He made, in fact, no reply at all, while the young chieftain, white with agitation and anger, helped him to his feet. When at last he stood upright, hot and dishevelled, and very conscious of the fact, Captain Wyndham said, in no friendly tone, "'You were just in time, I think, Mr. Cameron. And that is, if, now that you are here, your savages will obey you.' From pale, the young man turned red. "'I warned you, if you remember,' he said, rather low, and then, leaving Captain Wyndham to pick up his hat and wig, and to restore some order to his attire, strode towards the silent and huddled group of his retainers, who had retreated in a body nearer to the crofts. Angry and humiliated as Keith felt, it was some consolation to him, as he brushed the pieces of heather off his uniform, and pulled his wig once more over his own short dark hair, to observe that, whatever their master was saying to them in the earth, it seemed to have a most salutary and withering effect. Even the redoubtable Lachlan, who hoarsely uttered some remark, presumably an excuse, was reduced to complete silence, either by the very terse and vigorous reply which he drew upon himself, or by the threatening attitude of the speaker. All this time the prophetic elder had sat at his cottage door listening, with his head tilted back in the manner of the blind, but taking no part in the reckoning which was falling upon the offenders, just as, presumably, he had sat throughout the assault. And having made short work of the culprits, the rescuer now seemed in haste to remove the rescued, and came towards him, his eyes still very blue and fierce. "'If you will allow me, Captain Wyndham, I will take you back to the house, away from these savages, as you rightly call them.' "'Thanks. I can return safely enough, no doubt,' replied Keith indifferently, pulling down his waistcoat. "'There are no more encampments of them, I believe, on the way back.' "'I should prefer to escort you,' returned Ardroy, most acutely vexed, as was evident. And, since his vexation did not at all displease the Englishman, he picked up his staff and preceded him in silence off the plateau. They had gone some way down the mountain path before you and Cameron spoke again. "'I had no right to accept your sword,' he said, in a voice still bitter with mortification. "'If I could not protect you against my own followers, I would not have had this happen for a thousand pounds. I can offer you no apologies that are deep enough for such an outrage.' "'Except for the loss of some buttons. I'm not much the worse,' replied Keith dryly, without turning his head. "'But I am,' he heard the Highlander say behind him, in a low voice. Nothing more passed between them until they had arrived at the level of the loch, but by that time a rather remarkable change had come upon Keith. Much better, and more dignified, to make light of the outrage which he had just suffered than to exaggerate it by sulking over it. Besides, he was beginning to be sorry for the palpable distress of that punctilious young man, Mr. Cameron of Ardroy, who could not in very justice be blamed for what had happened. So he stopped and turned round. Mr. Cameron, he said frankly, I've no one but myself to thank for the rough handling I received up yonder. You warned me not to go far afield, and moreover, I acted like a fool in staying there to watch. Will you forgive my ill temper? and let me assure you that I shall think no more of the episode, except to obey your warnings more exactly in future. 
Ardroy's face cleared wonderfully. Oh, you really mean that, sir? Assuredly. I ran my head into the lion's mouth myself. I shall be obliged if you will not mention my folly to the ladies. A soldier's self-esteem, you know, is easily hurt. His smile went up a little at the corner. A sparkle came into you and Cameron's eyes. You are generous, Captain Wyndham, and I am not deceived by your plea for silence. I am so ashamed, however, that I welcome it for the sake of my own self-esteem. But I mean what I say, returned Keith. He was quick enough in the uptake, this young chief of barbarians. It was the act of an utter fool for me, in this uniform, to stand gaping at, at what was going on up there. You know what it was, I presume, he added, with a lift of the eyebrows. Naturally, said Ewan, without embarrassment. It was that which brought me up there, most fortunately. But now, he went on, with a frown, now I am not sure that I shall allow those arms to be carried by men in my tail, who have so disgraced themselves and me. Let us go on, if you will, for when I have escorted you to the house, I shall return to deal with that question. You seemed, observed Keith, as they went on once more, to be dealing with it pretty satisfactorily just now. So he proposed, as a punishment, to debar the offenders from the pleasures of armed rebellion. At least, before I consent to their following me on Monday, said the dispenser of justice, striding on, they shall all beg your pardon. Oh, pray excuse them that, exclaimed Keith, not at all welcoming the prospect. I should be horribly embarrassed, I assure you. Moreover, I can almost sympathize with their zeal. Now that there's no prospect of my being thrown into the lake here with a stone round my neck. His captor stopped. Was that what they were going to do? he asked in a horrified tone. They spoke of it, since I would not promise to keep silence on what I'd seen. They were quite logical, you know, Mr. Cameron, for what I saw was certainly not meant for the eyes of an English officer. You were my prisoner, my guest. They had no excuse whatever, declared the young man, wrath beginning to seize on him again. Neil and Lachlan knew that, if the others did not. And Angus, what was Angus about not to stop them? Is that the blind veteran who takes such an interest in the natural history of these parts? What do you mean? asked his companion. Why? answered Keith, who was, after all, enjoying a kind of secret revenge by quizzing him. That he was particular to inquire, through his estimable son, your piper, whether I had encountered a heron before I made your acquaintance yesterday. The mention of that fowl appeared for the second time to startle his host, though until that moment Keith had forgotten its effect upon him last night. Ah, oh, my foster father asked you that, he murmured, and looked upon the Englishman with a rather troubled and speculative gaze. But Keith had found a new subject of interest. Is the old gentleman really your foster father? he inquired. But of course he must be, if his sons are your foster brothers. I think, said the foster son somewhat hastily, that you can return safely from here. So, if you'll excuse me, Captain Wyndham, I will now go back to Slochtnan Ian. <laughs> to execute judgment, finished Keith with a smile. Indeed, I'm not so devoid of rancor as to wish to hinder you. But if you do condemn your foster relations to stay at home, he added rather meaningly, you will be doing them a good turn rather than an ill one. It seemed doubtful, however, if you and Cameron had heard this remark, 
for he was already striding lightly and quickly back in the direction of the mountain path, his kilt swinging about his knees as he went. It was an odd coincidence that at supper that evening, after Angus McMartin's name had come up in some talk between Miss Cameron and Mr. Grant, the former should turn to Captain Wyndham and ask if he had seen their Taisha or seer. Seeing instantly from Ardroy's face that he was regretting the introduction of his foster father's name into the conversation, Keith made malicious haste to reply that he had contrived to get as far as the soothsayer's dwelling, and that his reception there had been a memorable experience. Immediately, the ladies asked if Angus had seen anything while the visitor was there, to which Keith, with a glance at his host, replied with great suavity that such might well have been the case, since he appeared, towards the end of the visit, to be entirely withdrawn from outward events. He left the honours to his interesting sons, he explained with a smile, who entertained me so, so wholeheartedly that if Mr. Cameron had not appeared upon the scene, I might be there still. But at this point Ewan, with a heightened colour, forcibly changed the conversation. End of section 4